<laughs> All right. Okay, now we're back on the air. Now, you want to see some of these artifacts over here? Yeah. All right. Now, the, the, when we got back, we got back into the, into the jungle. Somebody asked why we went, why it happened. Well, like so many things in life, and, and it, it's curious how these things happen, so many things in life that you do that turn out to be big deals usually start out in, in the most ridiculous way. I wonder how many people are married to people who they met under totally ridiculous circumstances. In fact, most of the circumstances we live in are ridiculous. <laughs> no, I'm serious about that. I wonder how many people, a little incident, they meet somebody in the dime store, and the next thing you know, their whole life has changed. Just as silly as that. Or they go into the gas station, and they stop, and they meet somebody by the Coke stand. They could have gone to the Esso station one block down. Instead, they went to the Shell station. They meet this chick standing by the, by the water machine. The next thing you know, forget it. It's Reno, it's three kids, it's murder, divorce, you know. And he turns out to be Tennessee Williams and writes a play. <laughs> well, this was that kind of thing. Let me tell you what happened. I'm sitting in my office preparing a show, working away the other day, and in came Barry Farber. Now, Barry is an interviewer on WOR who precedes me at 9 o'clock. No, he's on at 8.15 to, uh, 8.15 to 9 and Barry walked in, and, and he just stuck his head in the door. You know, one of those things, he's always around. He's just looking harassed, and the phones are ringing. He said, hey, chef. I said, yeah. He said, how'd you like to go to Peru? I said, yeah. He's okay, and he walks away. <laughs> I said, I'm serious. That's the way it happened. So I didn't think anything about it, you know. I said, oh, I don't know. So I go back to the stuff, you know, and I'm looking out the window and yelling and hollering, getting on the phone, you know, I'm getting ready for a show. And... Life went on. The next day, I'm back at the same old stand, and I'm on the phone yelling and hollering, and Barry looks in the door, and he says, Hey, Chef, it's all set. I said, Yeah, okay. I said, What? He says, You're going to Peru. You're all set now, okay? I said, Yeah. <laughs> Again, still not, I'm serious, this way it happened, still not thinking that it was, you know, it's just one of those things. Well, by George, the next day... Barry walks in, says, I've got to talk to you for a minute, Chef. He's got that southern accent. He said, I've got to talk to you for a minute. I said, what about, Barry? He said, well, you know, the guy from, the guy from Luden's is going to come down here in about ten minutes, and he wants to see you, get, get all prepared. He said, did you get your letter on the jungle gear you got to get? <laughs> well, I've gotten some nutty letter. <laughs> you know, you get seven million letters in this business, you just throw them out. You know, the letter said something about snake bite, got the big boots. It says the natives are friendly but have no word for thank you, so look out. <laughs> And, you know, that, that's what the letter said, you know. And I thought, well, you know, well, no, I throw it out. See, I said, well, yeah, I, I didn't want to appear like a nut, you know. I said, I said yeah, I got the letter, Barry. <clears throat> he said, well, the fellow who wrote it is in the next room. He says, come on down and meet him. He's from Luden's. I said, wait a minute, Barry, what do you mean, Luden's? He says, Luden's cough drops, you know. Cough drops, you know, mental cough drops. Well, I'm a Smith brother, man, you know. <laughs> so, I said, I like old trade, especially. Mark, I don't know. I wonder whatever happened to Mark. You know? He's got the look of a drinker in the eye, you know. So, uh, I, I said, Ludens, what is it, Barry? But clue me in, Barry. He said, well, didn't you don't you know what it's all about? I said, no, Barry, what is it all about? 
said, you're kidding. I says, no, Barry, I am not kidding. He says, we are going down the jungles with the headhunters. I said, the what hunters? He says, the headhunters. He said, you know, Tariri, I, well, I had him on the show one day. You're going down there. He said, you, you know, they're all set. I said, you mean I can't chicken out? He said, well, they bought your ticket. Oh, I got a ticket to see the headhunters. I mean, where do you buy that? Can you go down there to Kennedy Airport? I want a ticket for the headhunters. Uh, I don't know where they are. I just want to go there, you know. 707 in the first class, you know. So he, he says, look, he says, I'll tell you what it is. He says, I went to a party. Now, I'll tell you the exact story. Barry innocently one day got an invitation to a party. And it was being given by Ludens. You know, there's millions of promotional parties in town all day long. And Barry went to this one because a friend of his was involved. And he just went to the party. You know, there's about a thousand guys there, and they're talking about cough drops and stuff. And, and you know, and, and on this side, you know, it, it seems to me, do you ever have that feeling that there are certain products that you never hear advertised or anything, but are always part of your life? Luden's cough drops. You know? Like uh, Calumet baking powder. It's always there, you know? Sen-sen. You never see a guy coming on, you know, on TV and says, does your breast stink? <laughs> you know, you just don't. There's all these products and yet they're always there. And you see them in the newsstands and they're always there. And people buy them ever since, I guess my grandmother must have sucked on Ludens. You know, all of a sudden I'm involved with Ludens. They want me, you know. And I said, well, what is it about, Barry? He says, well, I went to this party, see. He says, it's a kind of nutty thing. And they had 500 pounds, they had this candy, all on display there. He said, you know, it was a big promotional party. He says they had Fifth Avenue candy bars, they had all the stuff they make. And he said, as part of the party, they had a drawing. They had, you know, one of these house drawings, if you, ha if you get the winning ticket, you get the 500 pounds of candy to be given to your favorite charity. So Barry's sitting there eating the rubber chicken. You know, he's listening to the speeches, and he's plotting, and he's saying, oh, yes, very good cough drop. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, and he takes the brochure on how they make them and all that stuff. You know, you get, you get used to that. And all of a sudden, the guy stands up at the other end of the room. He says, attention, we're now going to draw for the grand prize, 500 pounds of our candy to be given to your favorite charity. And he's already on his way out, see. He says, the prize here goes to number 722, a Mr. Frabber. Is Mr. Frabber here, Mr. Burley Frabber? This is Burley Frabber, Frabber Burley, Burley. He said, my name is Barry Faber. I got number 1220. You win, that's yours. 500 pounds of cough drops. Barry said all of his life he's never won anything. And now this, you know. So I'll tell you the true story. So they call him up. They call him up, up to the podium there, see. And they say, we're going to give this to your favorite charity. Barry's standing there thinking of his favorite charity. What if you're asked about your favorite charity? And what do you do? You know? So he's standing there. Have you noticed all the official people have got them? Jerry Lewis, all the comics got a favorite charity. It's always connected with some disease. If I was asked for my favorite charity, I'd say Uncle Carl. <laughs> you know, my Uncle Carl's been on his uppers all his life. Well, Barry couldn't think of anything. He's standing there, you know, and I guess they figured he's going to say, uh, they figure he's going to say something like the Red Cross or the, the, you know, the bond drive or something. 
He says, uh, uh, I got an idea. He said, you know, the other day I had in my show, he said, I had these headhunters. And, and uh, I'd, like, I, I'd like to do something for those, those missionaries down there. I'd like to send all my candy down there. And they stood there and they said, what? <laughs> they couldn't chicken out. There's a thousand dealers all standing there. You know, you know those klutzy-looking salesmen all there. Well, there's Ludens up against the corner, you know. All it was going to do was to take the candy out, put it in the truck, and take it to the Salvation Army, you know. And he says, headhunters. And they said, well, where are they? They figured they were in Queens or something, you know. And, and he, says, uh, he says, well, these headhunters are in the upper, upper headwaters of the Amazon River. Amazon, that's over there by Trenton, isn't it? You'd be surprised how few people know where the Amazon is. They think it's in Africa or something. And so he says, it's in the headwaters of the Amazon. He said, now, if it's too much trouble, he said, I just, you know, just don't worry about it. Send it where you have your life. But that's my favorite charity. And he said it into the PA system. <laughs> and walked out. And there they are with egg all over their face. You know, they're 500 pounds of candy. And the headhunter's 4,000 miles away. And they got to send a man with it, you know. They got to get one of the cough drop men to go with this, you know, to watch the cough drops. Well, about 20 minutes later, here is a man in the cough drop company, see? He's sitting there calmly. And the, and the, his little, his little PA, you know, the little intercom buzzes. He says, yeah, oh, JB, yeah, what is it? You don't cough, by the way, when you work for Ludens. This guy's been fighting a tendency to cough for years. He goes out on his coffee break and goes, oh, 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 uh, comes back in. <laughs> so anyway, he, he's sitting there by his, his little buzzer there, and it says, uh, it says, Lee, Lee, this is JB. Uh, we got this... Uh, We've got this charity presentation. Now, would you, you mind going and make a charity presentation? Yes, J.B. Well, uh, it's in the Amazon jungle. The headhunter's there. And uh, you're leaving Friday. Click. Would you please stand up, Lee? There he is. There is the guttiest PR man in the world. <laughs> I mean it. Well, Barry, now, you, and, and, and so he's the PR man, see, and he knows he, he, he's the public relations man for Ludens, and he is basically chicken. And he can't see himself going alone down there, so he gets on the phone to Barry Farber. says, Farber, I've got a great idea. And you know, Barry's sitting there, he's one of these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, Madison Avenue liberal types, you know. Yes, yes, Mr. Chamberlain, yes, mm -hmm, yes. Yes, I gave that to my favorite charity, yes, Headhunters, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, indeed, he said, I, I love his... And, and he, he mousetrapped them, see. He said, uh, he said, you know, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be wonderful just to see those guys when they get that candy? <laughs> well, what are you going to say, no? <laughs> you know, uh, ridiculous. I was just about... Barry says, yeah, sure would be great to take a look at their eyes. He says... Lee says, be ready to leave Friday. 
Well, how many of you guys are peace marchers until they come to ask you to get your placard and go out and march? Well, that's Barry, see? Barry immediately starts babbling about he's got a certain blood pressure system that won't let him fly. His blood comes out of his ears. Yeah, he's got all cock and bull story, unbelievable story, you know. And then he hears me on the phone in the next room, see? He wants to... And I, he knows that I'll, I'm game for anything, you know. And so he caught me. He, he waited until my phone was ringing and I was opening a letter. And he walked in and says, how about Peru? I says, yeah. He ran in and says, Lee, yeah. I says, I've got a guy to go. Yes. That's how it all started, gang. Well, I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this, that I've been involved with many... First thing, when I got involved in this thing... Now, I want to, I want to make some things very clear to you. That the first thing that happened was that the Luden Company says, this cannot, under any circumstances, we do not want this to be ever construed as a promotional gimmick. No, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It was not. This is exactly the way it happened. They had no idea of this. And as far as they were concerned, they were just going to send the candy to a charity, and that was all. Period. What? Because we wanted a record of it. I wanted pictures. And I wanted my own pictures. And so did Lee Chamberlain. And everybody connected with Ludens was fascinated. They wanted pictures. And so they, they, they said, all right, we'll send you fellas down. And, and it would be a fascinating thing for all of us. Now, we got in touch with, a, with, a, with the organization. Did you, did you hear on Barry's show a couple of months back a headhunter, an ex-headhunter chief, who was interviewed? His name is Taridi. He had been brought up to America by an organization known as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Now, don't laugh, Dad. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry you don't. That was the laugh of a jackass. Listen, you'll hear another one. And nevertheless, this outfit for a long time has been concerned about the Indians in that area because they're doomed. They are doomed. These are Stone Age Indians. Now, they're not like our Indians at all. Our Indians uh, for a long time. And in fact, our Indians at the time that we landed in America were far more advanced than the Indians in the Amazon area where we were are today. There are many tribes in that area who have never seen an iron tool. Are you aware that there are tribes in that area who don't even know there are other people in the world but themselves? And there's one tribe that was about 100 miles from where we were that has accounted as a headhunting tribe. And by the way, that's a ritualistic. It's not because they're evil, rotten people that go out and murder each other. It's all religion. It's all kinds of mysticism. And headhunting is part of the whole mythological world they live in, that there's one tribe that has accounted for over 800 people in one year, this past year. You imagine that right now as we're going, this tribe is out right now probably on a ritualistic hunt, and they are deadly. And from one of these tribes, from one of those tribes has come this thing. Uh, you're looking at, this is a bloodwood war club. 
used by the Auka Indians, which up to a very recent time had not even been contacted by any kind of civilization. They were one of the worst feared tribes in all the Amazon basin. By the way, the chief that we stayed with, a man named Tariri, about five feet six, I'd guess him to be, oh, probably in his mid-fifties, but he is, he's built like a fire plug. You know, jungle life is hard. There's no fat Indians. Uh, they're either dead Indians or hard Indians. That's the end of it. They hunt. In fact, I asked, I asked one of the people if I could, if I could go hunting with them. And they said, well, you, you wouldn't be able to do it because they go through that jungle, which is impenetrable. It takes most of us, it would take most of us a good part of a day, seriously, to travel from right where you're sitting to the road, 7th Avenue. It's that tangle, undergrowth, marsh. It's dark, low. You see, this is lowland, water going through it. You're up to your knees in water most of the time in this jungle. Mosquitoes, heat. And they go through that jungle, believe me, like shadows. And they literally pursue the animals. They don't just walk in there and see a, a, a bird and shoot it. They keep pursuing them until the animal is so tired that they can hit them. They can shoot them with an arrow, get close enough to hit them with a blowgun. And so they go through that jungle just like a wave. Seven or eight of them will be hunting. They live off the jungle. And you're looking at a Bloodwood war club. This was used for war. It's a weapon. And you know, no, look at it. Very, it's very interesting because the theory is that somewhere along the line, these Indians, many centuries ago, had seen a sword somewhere, a broadsword. And this is their version of it. It's made of a very hard... Doesn't it look like modern sculptor? Looks a little like a broncusi, doesn't it? It really does. And this thing is swung this way. And, and they usually catch each other right on the side of the neck. And it's, it's heavy and beautifully balanced. It's better balanced, believe me, than a Louisville slugger. And you get this thing in your hand, and there's something that happens to you. <laughs> your soul begins to grow hair. So this, after the show, if, if you're interested, I'll let you, I'll pass these around so you can feel them. Would you like that? After the show. Now, to give you a, another thing that happened, we, we got in these planes... Uh, the, the Wycliffe people, incidentally, the, the, the thing that these people do... Now, I'm going to tell you a story. I want just about two minutes of your time for this story. Our translator who traveled with us was a woman who in 1950 went into this tribe with another girl, two college girls, who were linguists. They had studied languages. They were linguist anthropologists. They went into this tribe alone. And this was the toughest headhunting tribe in the entire area. They, no, no, wait, wait. Get, wait a little wait later, fella. Come on, come on. Not yet now. They went into the tribe alone. And these Indians looked at them. They had just come back from a raiding party. They had a half dozen heads with them. That's a fact. She told me about this. And they looked at her, and she looked at them. And here they came, right out of the clearing. And they didn't even know whether they were human. That is, the Indians, here these people looked so different from any people they'd ever seen. They asked them later whether they died like real people. They, they asked them things like, uh, do, you, do you breathe? Do you do things like 
human. They, they, they didn't look human to them. And the chief, their chiefs are different from what we think of chiefs. They're not really, they are formal chiefs, but the way a chief gets to be a chief in that tribe is by being the most effective killer. That he merely killed all of his rivals, and at that time he'd killed up to about 35, 40 rivals and had their heads. And so she met this man, and there was silence. They spoke a language that no one spoke. There's no written language, nothing. They spoke a language called Chapra, which was only spoken by this tiny tribe. It was her job to decipher this language. Can you imagine that? And after eight years with them, she speaks it fluently and created their alphabet so they can read. So they literally can contact the outside world and survive when it comes in. And you have no idea how grateful they are. But here's the thing I wanted to say. For six months, she and her friend lived in this hut on, with them. He gave them a hut. You stay there. And for six months, the tribe debated whether or not to kill them. And they didn't know it. The tribe said nothing. And one day, the chief came up to her, and he put his arm around her. And he talked to the tribe. She didn't know what he was saying. She had picked up just a few words. And she saw suddenly all these people, all the tribe, came up to her one by one and touched her, just put their hand like this. He had told the tribe that she was now a sister to all of them, which made it impossible. Nobody in the tribe kills sisters. And that meant she's in. Well, she lived with this tribe for eight years, and that's the tribe we visited. And she spoke their language. And they really were and had been headhunters. And he still wore the same dress and had the same strange mystic quality about him. And at night, when we went to bed, they're unbelievably hospitable. By the way, hospitality in the jungle, that even to your enemies, you have to be hospitable. That's an Indian tradition. They, that's why he said, here, have a house, when these two walked in. He gave them a house. But the hospitality is, is indescribable. And you don't really, you have to eat their food, by the way. It's considered a terrible insult, you know, if you come in with your lunch. You say, I don't, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine if you brought all your own hamburgers here, you know? And you say, we don't trust a hamburger here, you know? Well, they, 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 they eat monkey. And, 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 and since many of you are eating, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> No, monkey is a very tasty meat, by the way. It's extremely tasty. It tastes like a cross between veal and chicken. And the only thing that bothered me is I had a vague sense that I was eating a relative. <laughs> you know, it's like having a thigh bone of your Aunt Min in your hand, you know. <laughs> There's something about monkeys. <laughs> but but uh, the way they cook monkeys, in case you're interested in a recipe, here's what you do. You want a recipe on monkeys? <laughs> well, all right. You get a spider monkey or you get a rough monkey or a howler. There are three or four types they eat. Big monkey. And you take the monkey. See, so you got him. And here's your fire. You take the monkey and you throw him in. That's the recipe. <laughs> and an hour later, you drag it out and you call the gang. <laughs> Well, this is very basic. Now, another thing they eat, they eat bananas. Of course, bananas are ubiquitous in the jungle. 
There are several different types of banana. There's a, there's a green banana like these plantains or plantains that you've seen around. And then there's the regular banana that you, you eat. But they, 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 they never eat bananas. They rarely eat bananas raw the way we do. And by the way, the men have a tradition. Men do not eat things that are sweet because that is a sign of being unmanly. Sweet things like honey, like uh, roast bananas, these are things that women eat. This is a definite world of men and women. And I'm going to show you something here, if you don't think so. How far we've come, men. Let's see, where is this thing here? Well, I don't see it. No, it isn't here. What happened to it? Oh, here it is. All right, here. I'm going to show you something, men. See this? I'm going to show you this. Look carefully at it. For those of you who can't see it, this is a, a piece of balsa wood. Balsa, by the way, is indigenous to that jungle. All of their rafts are made of balsa. This is balsa wood, and it's, it's wound with a native... By the way, they weave. This, they weave, and they also make cloth out of various types of fibers that grow in the jungle. And this is, this is wound with that. And these are talcum feathers and various parrot feathers. This is a parrot feather. And this is a piece of leather from the hide of a jungle taper. See, it's just like rawhide. You know what this is, men? This is a wife beater. Well, let's give them a... So I don't think them natives, uh, they've got a lot to teach us, haven't they, men? This is a wife beater. And doesn't it look great? Look at that. And you notice it's pretty. <laughs> you know, it's got style. And, and this wife beater, by, no, that's all right, leave it go. This wife beater is used, it's the only known competition they have. I asked one of the missionaries, I said, do they have any games? You know, do they have any competitions? He says, yeah, they have wife beating competitions. <laughs> they do, they have wife, and the wives love it, by the way. So every, all of you think of American girl getting beaten. No, no, this is a very different scene because the wife there has her ways of getting back. Have you ever sat down to a meal of half-cooked monkey? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, everybody in this jungle, everybody's got his place, and it's very important. Because, you know, the, 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 in, in, a, in a jungle tribe, in, in their social hierarchy, it is a strict rule that the women prepare the food. That's it. And so, I mean, that's really, uh, it's, it's a, a taboo even. And a man has taboos against doing it, say. So he's dependent on her. He's not going to say, I'll fix the supper tonight if you're that way. You know? No, no, there's a really, it's a food. See, so if, if all she's got to do, if he gets smart, is to melt into the jungle. And then he's in trouble. I mean, real bad trouble. He's got to go out to a neighboring tribe, brain somebody, and steal his wife, you know? And so they, there's a very definite thing. Now, how do they compete in wife beating? I'm going to tell you. It's done ritualistically. And they really do it. And you are, you're, you're eliminated from the contest the minute you draw blood. So if you draw blood, you're out. That's a bad wife beat. Just a little gentle flick, you know, on the, on the hindquarters. <laughs> Just keep her moving, see? Wouldn't that be great in Corvettes? <laughs> I think you'd sell a lot of these. And they... <laughs> And, and, and incidentally, in the tribe that uses these, these are very prominently hung on the center pole of the house so that everyone knows what's happening in this house. 
That's a wife beater. Now, I'll show you something else. Here is something. Speaking of wife beaters, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. You ought to see what they do to Martha Dean every day. Uh, this, now wait, this, look carefully at this, friends. You won't see many of these things. This is probably one of the most deadly weapons ever devised by primitive man. And it would do very well here in this city. This is, this is a beautifully made light. This is made from a jungle reed, which is very strong, light. These are buzzard feathers of a particular type. They have a hawk in that area, a very tough feather. And you see it's bound. This is a headhunter arrow that's shot from a bow. This wood is, is one of the hard, tough woods. It, it uses a wooden tip. And you'll notice, can you, can you see the barbs on it? Can all of you see that this is a barbed hook? It's one, of the, it's one of the strongest, toughest arrowheads made. And this wood is put into fire. It's, it's, it's hardened. And now you'll notice that there's a brown stain on this. You see the stain here? You see the stain on this tip here where the, where the, where the binding is on? This is curati. This thing is dipped in curati when it's made, and it's permanently poisonous. Uh, now... It's not dangerous to you here unless it's plunged into you and your blood dissolves some of this karari that's on it. But to an animal, of course, that can't pull this thing out, he's dead. Uh, within a very short time, incidentally, karari is not deadly. It's like a very strong anesthetic. It just knocks them out completely. And it works on the central nervous system. This is a, a genuine one. This is not a tourist bit, by the way. This is a real thing from one of the tribes, the Auka tribe, by the way, in that area. Now, I'll show you another kind of arrow they use. That's used for big game. They don't use that kind of arrow on birds. Uh, that arrow is used for things like uh, a jaguar, which, by the way, are very, very, very dangerous. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, the jaguar, as a predator, is far more dangerous than any of the other jungle cats, including the tiger, which has gotten good publicity. <laughs> Believe me, if you put a sign on the back of your car that says, I got a Jaguar in my tank, every tiger would turn green. Because the Jaguar is one of the few animals that does eat people. And it does it just because it wants to eat, that's all. In other words, most there are such things as man-eating tigers, but they usually come about because the tiger is old or any other unusual reasons. But the Jaguar does prey on people. And one of the men told me a story that he witnessed, one of the missionaries. He said that he was just coming into this camp, this little where he was, and there were two women fixing food when all of a sudden, out of the undergrowth, came a jaguar. It just made two jumps and attacked this woman. And he was there, and he said she screamed and fell over, and the other woman tried to beat it. It made a swipe at her, knocked her down, he was unarmed, he rushed at it, and the next thing you know, it was all over. He said there were two women killed by this jaguar while he watched. And he said the jaguar then turned and off into the jungle, trying to drag one of them back. He said, but the other natives came in and raised Cain, and he dropped them and went. But he said it was all over that fast. So the jaguar, this is, this is used for hunting jaguar, and it's also used for hunting other people. <laughs> this is a people arrow. Now, here's another kind of arrow that they use, which is a very common arrow. You see this type here? That's a nasty-looking little thing, isn't it? 
That's a twin, twin-tipped arrow. It's it's made. It's got two tips hardened. By the way, this is also curare tipped. And you'll notice that these arrows. You notice how nicely aerodynamically these arrows, the arrow feathers, are made with a rifle cut to them, so that when the arrow goes through the air, it spins. It's a spinning arrow. It's not a straight arrow. This arrow, incidentally, is used for fish. It's not used for anything else other than fish. That's why it's got a split tip like that, and it, it, there's more chance of hitting a, a swiftly moving fish. Sometimes they throw these arrows. Other times they use the bow. Uh, this particular arrow, by the way, was used and used for a long time, and the reason they have such tough weapons for fish is that there are several types of fish that grow in that area that are unbelievable. There's a fish called a pichu. They call it pichu. It's about the size, it's a freshwater fish, it's about the size of three of these tables laid together. And he weighs something like 400, 300 pounds. And they go out hunting these things with poisoned arrows, and they, they live off fish to a great extent. So this is, this is a fish arrow. Now, you want to see the bow they use? Uh, here, here's, here's a, a real... Now, this bow is deceptive. Can you see it well? This is a hunting bow that's made of the same type of wood, which is a exceedingly strong, tough, tensile wood. It's, and it's beautifully carved. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the anthropologist that, that talked to me about this says, look carefully at this. He says, this is one of the most beautifully engineered springs that he's ever seen, just as a spring. It's delicately tapered, and watch the way it pulls back. This is, a, this is a kind of jungle fiber they use for the bow string. Look at that thing. It's got about a 60-pound pull. And you can imagine with that, with that fluted arrow what this thing would do. Uh, they claim that, that an Indian using an arrow like this can put it all the way through a man at over 100 yards, about the length of a football field. This thing really moves. In fact... Uh, they, they, some of the stories of the and their marksmanship is fantastic. Uh, they they claim that with an arrow they use uh, they use also a very small arrow with small bows for birds, and they claim I've, I've, many of the people who've watched him do it will say well he'll whip up his arrow and he says he lets that arrow go before you even know there's a bird, and he says a hundred feet away up in a tree, maybe thirty five forty seventy five feet up this bird comes floating down with an arrow right through. Uh, now, I'll show, I'll show you some other things that they use there. This is probably my greatest possession of anything that I have, including, well, anything that I have. Because there's a very important story connected with this. When I went into the tribe with Lee and with Saul, we went in there, and they had been used to seeing white men of a certain kind, teachers, doctors, people who would come in occasionally to trade with them. Well, we walked into the tribe, and we, we were just there for fun, you know, and we, we talked to them, and it suddenly got dark, and I decided that I was going to do a show for them, you know, like I do a show for you. <laughs> I decided I'm going to entertain them, so I, I, didn't know quite, I didn't know the language or anything, so the first thing I did, I took this out right here. This is my nose flute, which you know I play. And, and, and I took it out, and they were all standing in the dark watching us, and they were very friendly. 
I took the nose flute out, and I, I, I kind of gave a motion for silence, like this. They looked, and I went. <laughs> and I could see them all looking at one another. And a couple of the kids began to giggle. And I said to the girl who was with us, the one who had first cracked their language, I said, uh, tell, them, tell them I'm going to play them a song. And uh, she told them in their language, which sounds very much like Russian. And they were fascinated, so they expected a hymn. And so old Shep goes... I was playing the Hudson High theme song. <laughs> well, for the next two hours, I played my Jews harp, and one of the boys went back and he got his flute, and probably for the first time in the history of music, there was a flute, Jews harp, headhunter, Madison Avenue duet. <laughs> And we really swung. I'll tell you, we did. I caught the beat of what he was doing. And by the way, their music is pentatonic. It's a five-note five scale, a very minor-sounding scale. And they automatically like the sound of this English Jews harp, which I have here. It's a very fine-tuned Jews harp, a serious instrument, by the way. And they like the sound of it. You can hear it. You see? And I, I, I took the Jews harp out, and immediately they said... That sounds like our music. Sounds like ours. And so I said, I'm going to play for you now. I'll show you what I did. And of course, everybody's laughing. It's a lot of fun. Two little girls are hanging out of my arm. And they're plucking at my beard. <laughs> yeah, they just kept feeling it. <laughs> they, they don't see beards. You know, the Indians are beardless. And they, I learned later, they love beards because the myth is, or they believe, that their ancestors many, many centuries ago had beards. And I looked like the biggest monkey. <laughs> yeah, they said I, they, it reminded them of a big monkey that talked, and they loved that, see? So these two little girls are clinging to me, and on, it's dark. And I take out my Jews harp, and here's what I played. You want to know what I played for them? Listen to this. I played green sleeves. And there was absolute silence. And I, I, I told the interpreter, I says, you tell them that's a love song. I don't know whether they even have love songs. And she told them. And one of the Indians, who was a young boy, who was a beautiful looking... They, they wear, if they want to know how they look, they wear their hair long, black. It's pitch black. Some of them wear their hair long. The Indian men wear their hair long, pulled down into a pigtail-like, a ponytail or they wear it cut across and down like the Prince Valiant style. Big, heavy hair. And this young Indian said to the interpreter, he says, that is so sad it made me cry. He loved it. And we had a great time for about a half an hour, and then he crept off into the darkness. That Indian, and I'm going to show you something you will never see again. This is what he brought out. And his name is written on it. This is his prized possession. His name is Arushpa. And somewhere back in the jungle, Arushpa is a 16-year-old boy, and we are looking at his violin, which two years ago he made by carving out of a single piece of wood. That's a single piece of wood, you see. And it's hollowed out of a single piece of wood, 
and he has tacked somehow a very thin lap over it. And on the top, you see the little face on the top of it? It has a tiny face carved in it with two little blue bead eyes. And I asked him what those were. And he said, in his language, of course, he says, this is a, a nose and that's a mouth. And he says, it's singing to you. The violin is singing to you. This little, it's the face of the violin. And he took it and he played it. He put it up like this and he has a tiny bow. I'll show you the bow. Here's the bow. It's just a tiny piece of wood. You see, this is pine, uh, palm fiber. And he bends it over like this. And he strings between these two ends a piece of, of palm leaf fiber, you know, the, the little veins of, of, of leaves that he's dried, and he ties them. And he plays it like this, across. And he, uh, if you heard the show last night, you heard him play it. It's, it's fantastic what he gets out of this. Well, he gave me this violin. He said, I could have this violin after it was over. He said, because he wants the people in America to see his music make. He calls it his music make. It's a, it's a campana, they call it in their language. But he wants everyone to see this. And he was at work making another one. Well, all that night we, we, we played and sang and the kids were just out of their skull. And so about three o'clock in the morning, the chief, who is a fantastically dignified man, and you have a feeling that this chief who is in, he has great influence over maybe a thousand miles of territory there, and here he is with all his children and his wife, Arina. He's wearing this big red feather. Oh, you want to see the headdress? Uh, where's Here, I'll show you the kind of headdress they wear. This was given to me by one of the boys. This, this is the type of headdress they wear. Isn't that lovely? Uh, this, is, this is made of talcum and parrot feathers. And it's, it goes back thousands and thousands of years. They wear them two ways. Uh, one way is to wear it on the top of the head like this. They wear it on the top of the head and they bring their hair up over it and down on the back. Then the other way is to wear it larger and pull down over the forehead. Well, Toridi had a chief's headdress, which was totally red, did not have any other color in it. That's symbolic. By the way, red is their favorite color. And he, he had a totally red one, big wide one, beads, Incidentally, would you stand up for a minute, Lee? Just stand up. She's wearing the type of beads, I brought some back, that they make for themselves. The, uh, this, these, no, that's all right. These are made from seeds, jungle seeds, which are polished. And they're carefully matched for color. And these, this is also made from jungle seeds with tiny beads that they get from an occasional trader that comes in the area. And this is how they decorate. And the men wear them, by the way. Uh, men wear great uh, beads. They wear beads across the chief, especially wears beads down around here, and a great, uh, great collection of beautiful beads. And this headdress. Now, ordinarily they don't wear shoes or anything, but lately, since they have realized that much of their sickness comes from mosquito bites, they didn't know that. Uh, they thought that any time somebody got sick and died, somebody else or a spirit had put a curse on them, and they went out and killed. That's why they killed. That's why they went out. They, 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 when, when your aunt died, uh, you would call in the medicine man and he would say, so-and-so of the next tribe has done it. And so you would go out and kill him to prevent him from doing that to others. And so 
since they have learned about mosquitoes and malaria and that, they wear long trousers, much like this, only they're dark. They wear trousers and they wear a shirt that's sort of ripped open that they have gotten, but it's to protect them from the mosquitoes and that. But they go barefoot and they wear this and all the rest of it. Now, about three o'clock in the morning, when we we're about to go to sleep, now it's getting dark, you can hear the you can hear the the birds out in the darkness there, and it begins to rain. By the way, that's something that 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 uh, is hard to tell you about, but a rain in the jungle. Uh, the sun is above you in this little chakra, which is their area where they live, and it's beautiful day. And suddenly you hear what sounds like hoofs. It sounds like people galloping hoofs coming. You hear this, and it's a rainstorm approaching over the jungle roof, coming closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, boom, down it comes. And it moves right on past like a freight train. It just goes, boom, and it's gone. And there's the sun again. Now, about three in the morning, Taridi, who had had such a wonderful time, and his children had enjoyed it, and Lee Chamberlain and Sal Potemkin and all of us had entertained them for about three or four or five hours, he said he wanted to give me a paddle. Now, this is very important to them because they live on the river, and a man's paddle is more important to him, really, than his bows and arrows because it takes longer to make one. This is carved out of a solid piece of wood of a certain type. And when I asked him what kind of wood it was, they, they had a native name, which means the wood that doesn't know how to break. And it's carved by hand. They, they rub it with bone and various other things. And you notice how this is gently concave. Do you notice that? It's a very subtle paddle. It's not just a flat paddle. It's concave, and this side is round. And it's held like this. They, they stand on the top of this little tiny dugout canoe and it's, thank you, it's paddled this way, <laughs> back and forth they work. Well, he said he wanted to give me a paddle, which is very important to him. And I said, well, that's, you know, I, I appreciate that. I'd like, I'd like you to sign your name to it. Well, they, that's important. It's been thousands of years and these people have had no written language. And the one thing that they have gained from civilization that they, you can't, I couldn't describe to you how proud they are of the fact they can write their name. And to ask him to write his name is like the greatest compliment. You know, you say, write your name. That means you're just like me. You do these things. And he said, of course. And so we went to bed. Now, when you sleep in these, in these jungle clearings, I suppose you're curious about their houses. Well, they're really just a thatched well, they, they look like a breezeway, really. They're just a thatched little... Well, it's rather large. Actually, about the size of this room. But it's thatched with palm leaves all woven together. And it's waterproof. Very little rain comes in. And it has poles driven into the ground at all four sides and in the roof. And over on one side, they build a platform of logs which they smooth off to make planks out of. It's a little platform this high. And they live on that platform with little rattan screens they put up, and it's all open. They live there. That's the way they live. And they have an open fire on one, in one corner. The fire is inside the house, by the way. An open fire, protected from the rain. And there's an open fire, and they just throw their food in there, and they eat that way. They don't eat meals like we do. You know, they don't all sit down and eat. They eat just gradually. There's somebody walk in and take a banana, and that's it. And 
somebody walk in and take a piece of monkey. But here it is. It's about 3.30 in the morning. I can hear the frogs down on the river, out in the jungle. And I can hear a few parrots beginning to wake up. And I see over in his hut, our hut was dark. We had two huts, tiny clearing. Over in his hut, I can see a little light. Now, this sounds corny. It was a very dramatic thing. Here is this headhunter chief who had killed upwards of 30 to 40 men. A real headhunter. And he's got his big red headdress. And he's sitting there in the dark with that little light trying to write his name on the paddle. And I'm watching him. And he's working like this. He sits there. You know that, that when you're taught to write, how you're taught to sit like this? And he's working away. That big red headdress and the beads. And I watched him do it. He worked on this for about an hour. And then it was dark. And the next morning he gave me this paddle. And here it is. And you can see... See the chalk here? They tell me that he had written his name the next day. The interpreter said he wrote his name first in chalk, and then he thought it looked terrible, see? So he tried to rub it off, and he wouldn't tell her he had done it. <laughs> he was very, very sensitive about it, and he wrote his name here, Tadidi. Tadidi. He wrote it twice. And then he did something that none of the missionaries had ever seen any of the Indians do. Now, shh. He did something that none of them could explain. He drew a picture. They had never seen any of the adult Indians do this. And I looked at this. I didn't think much about it, you know. And he also drew a face. See the face? And this picture, I asked the girl, I said, ask him what the picture is about. And she said, he told her that it's his child. And no one knew why he did it. Well, later, we're talking about I talked to the interpreter. She says, you know, I have a suspicion that the reason he drew this picture was because he wanted to show the children enjoying what we did. And this face is the face of him or me smiling. And here is the, the, the paddle that was used just this past week. And it's authentic, very authentic, by an ex-headhunter chief on the Marana River which is one of the most remote rivers in the world. Miles, miles, and oh, thousands, really, and ten light years away from our world. These people are just out of the Stone Age. And this is the greatest gift that he could give me. So after the show, if you want to look at it, I'd be glad to show it to you. Uh, I'll show you another thing they make. They make beautiful things there. We just have a few minutes. I, I can't show them all to you. This... You want to see something fascinating? This is a hand-woven skirt that is made by the... They, it's a wraparound skirt. As you can see, it's big. They just step into it, wrap it around, and put a big pin on the side. This is from the Shapipo Indians, which is another tribe. And uh, they claim that these designs are maybe 10,000 years old. It's found on their pottery as, as, as early as 4,000 years ago, the same design. That's uh, Shapipo Indian. Now, here's, here's the finest pottery made today. This, this is made, again, by another one of the, the headhunting tribes in the area, and it's made by the old women. Uh, the pottery is made by hand. They don't spin it or anything like that. It's made by hand, and they glaze it in the fire. 
You notice the same design is on this that was on the, on the skirt? That same geometric design. And they, it all has meaning, by the way. And uh, this is one of their pots. It's exactly the same as the pots they found in the same city, the same native village, 4,000 years ago. And they're sitting there making this. And uh, you want to see more of it? Uh, what's that? Okay. Uh, oh, you want to see a blowgun? Well, now this is not an authentic blowgun. The Indians make toys for their children. And you know how we make toys for, you know, our toys consist of plastic 45 revolvers, uh, cap guns. This is a toy blowgun for a child. And they, they, they play, and by the way, it shoots. Uh, and the kids play with these and in so doing learn how to use a dart and blowgun. Uh, I have the darts here. They come in a tiny... By the way, the blowgun is really about nine feet long. An actual blowgun is very difficult to make. This is a toy one. And these are typical... By the way, these are typical blowgun darts. These are also used by the big darts. These are not toy darts, these. Uh, this is a blowgun dart. Uh, it's made of uh, a palm fiber, the same stuff they make the bows out of. It's dipped in karate. And they wrap around the end of it a kind of jungle fiber, which looks a little like cotton. And it's stuffed in here, just like that. And this, give a good shot, and it would go right through your rib cage and out the back. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a toy. Uh, here is a, here's another. Well, I'll show you all this stuff after we go off the air. And I want to thank all of you for giving me your attention, because this has been an unusual show. Did you enjoy it? Thank you. And we'll be back next week at the Limelight. And I want to thank all of you for coming. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Here's a program reminder for you. Patricia McCann, daughter of WOR's Dora and Alfred McCann, will add a new program dimension to the WOR weekends beginning the 2nd of October at 2.15 in the afternoon. Now, Patsy's program of lively music and reports on the contemporary scene will be heard every Saturday and every Sunday right here over WOR Radio from 2.15 until 4 o'clock starting October 2nd. Now stay tuned for Randy. He's coming your way with his guest panelists right here over WOR AM and WOR FM in New York at exactly midnight. It's that time again. It's not only midnight. It's not only time for the Randy Show, but this time we're going to talk again, much to the chagrin of many adults, we're going to talk again with teenagers. Did that sound like a strange comment? I hope not. We get a lot of comments from adults at home who hear us on the air with the teenage panelists, and they say, why you have such a nerve to get kids on there? Because they don't know what they're talking about. Some kid the other night said such and such. And, of course, this is nonsense because uh, I've been here for 85 years and I know better. Well, sometimes I think that adults are over-informed. I seriously think that perhaps they um, are too much educated, they have too much information to handle, and perhaps they don't have as um, direct an approach to matters of the world. On the other hand, um, their experience does give them uh, a certain um, savoir-faire, a certain patina, perhaps, that teenagers don't have. But I'm always very pleasantly surprised.